Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The podcast is about to begin. Graveyard Grumbler Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Graveyard Grumbler Podcast. I'm your host, Tina Romero Jr., a.k.a. the Graveyard Grumbler. Today is part two of episode 80. We're going to continue with the death death conspiracy of Princess Diana. Now, last episode on part one, we left off on her pregnancy. And the last thing that was said was that it was reported that friends said she was in her normal menstrual cycle and there was evidence she was using contraception. I call bullshit. You don't know. Like I said in the last episode, nobody really knows who's using uh, contraception. I mean, she could have been raw dogging it for all we know. It's her business. No one else's. So let's continue. Missing CCTV images. Oh, yes. Even though this was back in the 90s, we had some closed captioning television back then. We're not that archaic. You know what I mean? So the absence of CCTV images showing the Mercedes journey from the hotel to the crash site has been frequently cited as evidence of an organized conspiracy. According to the independent newspaper in 2016, there were more than 14 CCTV cameras in the Pont de Alm. Again, I'm going to apologize for butchering these French words, so please bear with me. In the Point de Alma underpass, through none re- though none recorded footage of the fatal coll- collision. So there was 14 CCT cameras in the in the Point de Alma underpass. So, I mean, for those of you who are curious, all you got to do is just Google that. It's P O N T space D E. Uh, I don't uh, L apostrophe A L M A underpass in Paris. You can Google that. You can get a better picture or a better vision of what exactly the the, the way that it was surrounding businesses and other things uh, and the underpass had CCTVs. However, ironically, or not ironically, but coincidentally, none of them were recording. However, reports state or reports show. That there were, they were recording perfectly fine in previous days. You know, I'm again, I'm, I try really hard not to be a conspiracy theorist. I really try my damnedest not to be a conspiracy theorist. But when I read reports saying or showing that previously there was all these cameras that were functioning fairly decently well, but then on one of the most important or one of the worst, most historic crashes that ever happened in the entire world. All of a sudden, none of them are working. None of them are recording. Hmm. You see what I mean? It's just really difficult for me to try to understand and believe everything that, that, that was happening or the strange coincidences surrounding the death of Princess Diana. Again, I'm going to call us this flat out and I'm going to say it loud and proud. I believe Princess Diana was taken out by the government. Maybe not specifically our government, but by a government, 100%. Princess Diana was assassinated. Let's continue. Judge Herb Stefan was appointed as examining magistrate in the case on September 2nd, 1997. On that day, by judicial order, he tasked a brigade criminally with, with identifying all video and photographic images along the route taken by the Mercedes. Lieutenant Eric Jagul of the brigade criminally led the team that carried out that work. 
initially by retracting, by retracing the route several times and drawing up a list of possible locations. And so, I mean, just like with, with, with several other investigations, they, they go back, they retrace the steps and try to figure out where long, where would video and best evidence of the pictures be taking place. Where did the paparazzi end up taking the pictures and did somewhere along the lines a fan or, like I said, mentioned earlier, the CCTV? Was that somewhere close to where more evidence or, or identifying features or shit that went wrong might come in to show? So, of course, you're going to, repl- you're going to retrace your, your steps. You're going to retrace everything that happened to see if you can find something that just more evidence to find out who killed Princess Diana. His report showed that his team identified 10 locations of CCTV cameras. None of these had any images relevant to the inquiry since they were princip- principally security camera facing the entrances to buildings. Most of the cameras were not maintained by the city of Paris. The owners of the buildings to which they were attached operated them privately. So now all of a sudden they had all of these, these cameras, but none of them worked. None of them were facing anywhere but entrances of buildings. Also, one of the most important pieces of information, none of them were were ran by the city of Paris. They were all operated privately, meaning that a lot of times business owners, especially back, back then when it was a little more expensive to have security cameras around, around your building, a lot of people just kept it up there for a scare tactic. No, I'm not saying that you can go ahead and go into some buildings that have cameras and it's going to, the, the cameras aren't going to work. But back in the 90s, it was a, more like a 50-50 shot if the cameras were actually going to work or if the cameras didn't work. So, you know, back in the 90s, that's why it was so easy to, to get away with a lot of crime without the, the help of, of cameras. <laughs> there was a traffic monitoring camera above the underpass in the place that Alma itself, but it was under the control of La Compagnie de Circulation Urbaine de Paris or the Paris Urban Traffic Unit. Why didn't they just say that to begin with? I'm not French. Come on now. The department closed down at 11 p.m., had no night duty staff and made no recordings. Officer in the Officers in the police... Oh my gosh. Officers in the police headquarters information and command center would continue to view the pictures shown by the traffic camera in real time, but could not control it. So basically, all of a sudden, or not all of a sudden, but again, coincidentally, the traffic camera didn't pick up anything of importance. There was no night duty and the, the, the officers who were in control of that unit or that department didn't have control of the the traffic camera, which is weird. I mean, again, this is back in the '90s, so uh, technology weren't uh, technology hasn't been. But technology it, it is a lot more advanced now than than it was back in the '90s. The subject of the CCTV cameras is dealt with in Chapter Five of the Operation Paget Report. It also so it was found that a photograph that was published in a book by David Cohan titled Diana death of a goddess and captioned as having been taken just before the car entered the tunnel was in fact taken by a photographer as the car left the back of the Paris Ritz. So there was information or there were pictures taken, but 
now it's an Easter egg hunt to try to track him down. All of this is just too, this, this is just too weird for me. Just coincidentally, you have a bunch of people following Princess Diana, but nobody has the, any evidence, no, any picture evidence showing that she was forced or that the driver was forced to, to cream and hit the, the pillar in the underpass. Again, this is this all smells like a conspiracy hit. This is all a professional hit job done by. Now, I'm not accusing the royals because I don't know. Maybe the royals has something to do with it. Maybe they didn't. But whoever it was, they were intelligent enough and and had the means to cooperate and gather enough enough professionals to get the job done and make it look 100% as if it were an accident. So a white Fiat. Now, analysis of the wreckage, analysis of the wreckage of the Mercedes revealed it had glancing contact with a white Fiat Uno car, which left traces of paint on the Mercedes bodywork. Extensive attempts by the French police to find the vehicle involved were unsuccessful. Although no one had seen the Fiat in the tunnel, some witnesses reported seeing an Uno at the seen an Uno exiting the tunnel. So now we might have. An, an actual victim. We, I mean, not a victim, but we actually might have an actual suspect. Someone who was driving a white Fiat, allegedly, per reports, made contact with Princess Diana's Mercedes, leaving paint and or, you know, I mean, it, it, obviously it's going to be paint, and identifying that it was a Fiat Uno that, that came in contact with the Mercedes Benz. So now we're going to go look for a, a white Fiat. I don't see. I, I, it's really difficult for me that, that to understand or to to swallow that. There's so many people in Paris at any given time, but nobody saw anything that was out of the ordinary. Every everybody that that were that was around there saw that everything was just a normal car accident. I mean, maybe maybe to the untrained eye, that's something. But I don't. know, Maybe because I'm on the opposite. I mean, I'm on the dark side of the world now. Since I do cover a lot of conspiracies and I do read a lot of a lot of questionable shit, maybe my eye is starting to look more past what what people normally see, normally see, versus what people look deeper into. Maybe no, no. <laughs> Mohammed Afayed alleged in his July 2005 statement to Operation Pageant and other times that the white Fiat Uno was being used by M16 as a means of causing the Mercedes to swerve and thereby crash into the side of the tunnel. Now, here we go again. The father of, of, uh, of Princess Diana's boyfriend, I think his name was Dino or Dino, uh, uh, Al-Fayed or Fayed, is claiming that M16 was in charge of driving the Fiat, causing it to crash into the side of the tunnel. Now, this is going to be a claim that has been repeated over and over and over. And he, I mean, even from the latest, I can't remember the last time that they had spoke to Muhammad Al-Fayed before, uh, before he passed away. I think he passed away. I think that's what I read. Now, don't quote me that. I'm not 100% sure, but I believe he did pass away. But I'll double check here in a little bit. He repeated over and over and over and would not change his way of thinking or his, or his, his, his uh, accusations that the British M16 was 100% involved behind the assassination of Princess Diana. Now, if you remember correctly, if you remember 
from uh, last uh, the the first part of of episode eighty. I played the Princess Diana interview where she said she don't think she she doesn't think she'll ever become queen of England because there's people who do not want her to become the queen. The system doesn't like who she is and what she's done, so they're going to do everything they can to in, in preventing her from becoming the queen of England. I mean, that, that little bit of, of, uh, of interview that I posted, that, that shit was pretty deep. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. That, that's, and again, that's just by that interview is what led me to believe that she was assassinated. Let's continue. Al-Fayed further alleged that the Fiat Uno was owned by a French photojournalist photo named Jean-Paul James Anderson a security services agent, according to Fayed, who had photographed Diana while she was at his villa in St. Tropez in July 1997. Since death in May 2000, Al-Fayed claimed was either due to guilt over that he had done what he had done or because he was assassinated by the French or British security services to silence him. We've seen this time and time again where People who have dropped dimes or who are an integral part of a scam or, or not a scam, but a scheme where there's a lot of moving parts. If, if somebody, uh, if, if the person who, who orchestrated together or who put that together sees that someone is, is starting to crack under pressure, they will eliminate that individual to, con- in, in, to continue preserving the secret or the crime that has been committed. The less people that know what happened, the better chance you have of hiding it and getting away with it. That's proven fact. That's why, number one, you don't post the most intimate, deep, dark details on the web. You keep that shit inside of you or write it down in a journal and keep it locked away. You don't go there posting a bunch of different shit. You don't tell uh, 97,000 people that you've done something wrong because one out of those 97,000 people are going to rat you out and drop dimes. Hmm. Anderson died in May 2000. The official verdict was suicide. His body was found in a black burnt-out BMW in a forest near the town of Nantes, near Melou, in the south of France. Anderson's death was attributed to to problems in his personal life. I call bullshit on that. Now, I would never have called bullshit on that if 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 I would not have done the Marilyn Monroe uh, episode that I did when when the CIA prints out how to on a how to assassinate someone and one of them is to is to pry and and expose their most vulnerable emotions and then ply them with drugs and alcohol to exacerbate the the the, the depression which eventually results into suicide now, this, remember, remember from the Marilyn Monroe episode, the, the CIA put out a, a pamphlet on how to assassinate someone using their own emotions and making it seem like an utter horrible suicide. So now what we have here in France is now we have a photojournalist who was found in a burnt BMW in, in a forest in the south of France. Allegedly, the suicide was attributed to the problems in his private life. Again, I call bullshit. I don't believe that was the reason for his suicide. I believe he was killed. Again, 
the, the less people who knows about the secret, the more chance the secret has to stay in. And that's the bottom line, right? Right. In 2000, uh, the 2008 inquest into his death of the Prince, Princess of Wales heard that evidence was uncovered from his friends and associates that prior to his death, he talked of suicide by pouring petrol in a car and lighting a cigar, as noted by Richard Horrell QC for the Metropolitan Commissioner. I don't think someone would go into that detail on how they're going to kill themselves. Now, I might be wrong on this, and don't quote me on that. This is again, this is just my unprofessional opinion, as I've stated several times throughout this podcast. However, when someone goes into detail saying that his he's going to take his death by pouring petrol in a car and lighting a cigar. It just seems that that he knew his death was around the corner. I see death around the cone, like Tupac said. I just I just don't I just don't see how something like this would be suicide. It's too coincidental and it's too it's too exact on what he said his suicide was going to be. But Grumbler, he described how he was going to kill himself. What well, doesn't that mean that he legitimately killed himself? Absolutely not. When you're when you're given death threats or when someone is pressuring you into do certain things, especially I mean you have assassins, they're going to get under your skin and when they tell you, "Look, I'm going to burn you in your car and I'm going to make it look like a suicide." People are going to start talking about it in hopes that someone's going to say, yo, there's something wrong with this guy. We should try to help him. But instead, you know, a lot of times people don't see the the warning signs and and they don't see the cry for help. So they just let it go. Now, I'm not sure if that's in this case. Maybe maybe it legitimately was a suicide. I just don't see it on my end as a suicide. Let's continue. The Padgett reports states that when the car was found, Anderson's body was in the driver's seat of the car and his head was detached and laid. (laughs) His head was detached and laying between the front seats. There's no way, absolutely no way, that someone's going to decapitate themselves and then place their head between the front seats. There's no way. There's no, I don't see that as a viable way of suicide. There was a hole. Okay, let's continue. There was a hole in his left temple. The French pathologist concluded this hole was caused by the intense heat of the fire rather than, for example, a bullet wound. Well, if if his car wasn't wrecked, if his car was still intact and the only thing that was pro, the, the only thing that was wrong with it was that it was burnt. What caused his head to what, what caused his head to be lopped off? Now I doubt I doubt very great I I, I mean not, not greatly but I very I doubt very very much that someone would set themselves on fire inside of the car and then chop their head off. I I think if they set themselves on fire, that they, they they would be too panicked in or, or in order to, they they wouldn't be controlled enough to chop their own head off. I mean, you can't you you can't set yourself on fire or the car on fire, and then chop your head off. I mean, I mean, let me rephrase it: you can't chop your head off first, and then set the car on fire. That that doesn't make any sense, right? Right. Again, I don't think this was a suicide at all. I believe this was another assassination. 
Boy, I tell you. Operation Paget found no evidence Anderson was known to any security service. And contrary to Al-Fayed's claim, his death was thoroughly investigated by French police. Although the whereabouts of the, of the car keys has never been explained. A break-in at his former workplace in June 2000 alleged to have been carried out by security service, services was found to be connected to his death as no items related to him were stolen. So allegedly, there was no keys found in the car of the BMW that was burnt. What was the explanation for that, you ask? You know, I don't know. The, the only explanation, the only true explanation is that this was a murder. This was not a suicide attempt. I mean, this was not a, this was not a successful suicide. This was a straight-out murder. This was another assassination. But Grumbler, it says here that there was no foul play. Again, we're going to go back to, to I'm going to reference the JFK conspiracy. Remember when, when uh, the Warren Commission found no evidence of foul play because it was conducted by the government? Okay, this is the same thing, except now we're in Europe. The, the, French, the, the, the French police did not find any foul play. It was thoroughly investigated, but they could not explain the whereabouts of the keys. Break-in at his former workplace in June 2000, alleged to have been carried out by security services, was found to be con- unconnected to his death, as no items related to him were stolen. If someone breaks into someone's workplace and they didn't steal anything, they were casing, they were, they were timing him, they were trying to see every detail that they can find about him and what better place than look into his work files. There in his work files, they can find everything about him. So what makes you think it wasn't, it wasn't connected? But I mean, here all of a sudden now, but it was, it was carried by security forces or services. It was unconnected to his desk, even to his death, even though they broke into his former workplace. Come on, boy, I tell you. This was, you know, quote, thoroughly investigated by French police, although the French police is ran by the government. I mean, that's no secret. So, again, how how long is the reach of the British government? I'm not again, I am not accusing the British royals or the British government. In, in, for the assassination of Princess Diana. But at the same time, I'm not taking it out off the table. And I just bought a big desk, so I have enough room to place it on my desk. You know what I mean? Boy, I tell you. It has been reported by numerous publications that the white Fiat Uno belonged to Lee Van Tan, who was a 22-year-old tax driver at, taxi driver at the time of the crash. The Tan, I think it's Tan. T-H-A-N-H. We'll just say we'll say we'll say Han. Han owned a white Fiat Uno identical to the one that struck the Princess of Wales Mercedes. Georges and Sabine Duazon identified Han as, quote, the agitated man they may have seen driving the car. In quote. Now we have this rogue guy named named, named uh, Lee Van Han, who was a 22-year-old tax driver, and now their, their witnesses are claiming that he was agitated. I mean, what, how agitated in what way? There's agitated drivers all the time. Or was it, or was it a fall guy? Again, remember, Lee Harvey Oswald, maybe he did a set. I mean, 
he did take the shots at the president, but was he? did he deal the, the final shot? Absolutely not. He was a patsy. He was the fall guy. He was the escape goat. Now is Han in the same way, maybe the escape goat to the, to the Paris law enforcement? I mean, he does drive a white Fiat Uno. Just, there's too many, there's too many coincidences and suspicions that's making me scratch my head believing that this was 100% an assassination. This was not an accident. This, there's no way that everything lined up the way it did. Now, I mean, okay, the, the possibility of it being an accident are, an accident are there, 100%. But was it an accident? Absolutely not. This was an assassination gone right. Han has always refused interview requests. In 2016, Han's father said his son had resprayed his white Uno red, his white Uno red hours after the crash, allegedly waking up his mechanic brother in the night to help him. Following tests, it was concluded that the car, quote, could have been involved in the accident, end quote. But Han's, but Han's involvement in the crash, quote, was ruled out by French police because he said he was at work on the night in question, end quote. It was later uncovered that he had left work early that night and could have been at the scene of the crime. Multiple witnesses recall seeing a man matching his description exit the tunnel seconds after the crash. Why, oh why, if you had nothing to do with it, if you were completely innocent, why would you repaint your white Uno? Red after hours after the crash. He was at work that night. Great, but he left early. How can you? T- how do you know he worked early, Grumbler? How do you know he left work early, Grumbler? Timesheets, man. We have the timesheets. Ninety nine point nine percent of bosses know when their employees leave. It's not a secret. They usually, we employ, employees usually have to check out. I clock, uh, either clock out, sign out on a timesheet, or verbally let the boss know, hey, I'm done, man. I'm leaving. You have a good night. All right, man. Peace. Be safe. Don't kill anybody. Ha, 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 ha. Oh, I tell you. When I, okay, here's my, here's my unprofessional opinion again. Here, here is my thought on this. My thought is that Mr. Han had something to do with the assassination of Princess Diana. Maybe, oh, maybe there might be some sort of small coincidence that he ended up colliding with the reckless driving of the, of the chauffeur who was trying to escape the paparazzi and being chased. Maybe, okay, I'm not, I'm not ruling that out. But what I am saying is maybe Han might have been paid to cause the accident in the tunnel. Let me know what you think. Graveyardgrumbler at mail.com. Graveyardgrumblerpodcast on Instagram. Let me know. I'll be more than happy to engage in conversation. I want to know what you guys are thinking. Interact. Let me know. Let's continue. Uh, Bright flash. What? What are you talking about, Grumbler? A bright flash. Oh, let me get in. Let me, let me explain to you what, what, what another conspiracy on how the chauffeur lost control and careened into the wall in the tunnel. An alternative explanation for the cause of the crash has been reports 
of a bright white flash just before the car entered the tunnel, blinding the driver. Richard Tomlinson made this allegation at the inquiry, but the veracity of his evidence was found found wanting. So allegedly, the driver lost control. Driving at high speed, there was a bright light that that blinded the driver, causing him to wreck into the wall. Is that, is that realistic? 100%. Has anybody been driving down the highway on a bright summer, sunny day? For those, of you who, for those of you who live in Washington, you don't know what I'm talking about, about bright, sunny summer days. But for everybody else who actually sees the sun, have you ever been driving down the highway and someone who has a, a shiny chrome detail on their either their bumper or, or or along the on their rims or on you know the trimming of their car is just super chromed out and that that sunlight hits it and reflects you and hits you right in the eye you literally can't see anything for several seconds until you readjust and and look and avert your eyes from being burnt from the reflection of the chrome now it just, it's just not chrome just chrome it just it, chrome is the first thing that popped in my head because i just had to uh, deal with that just the other day, but luckily for me, I had a set of Tom Cruises on. And for those of you who don't know what what Tom Cruises are, for me, that, that's, that's just my sunglasses. I just call them Tom Cruise. I feel like a Hollywood star when I put my sunglasses on. So, <laughs> and for my brother Marcos Chubox, yo, you don't know what I'm talking about with the, with the sunglasses, man. One one day, my guy, you might know what I'm talking about. Let's continue. It was found by the authorities that three eyewitnesses at the scene of the crash claimed to see a bright flash of light before the crash. Francois Levestry, uh, originally Francois Levy, made a clear specific claim that he saw a bright flash, but his three statements to the authorities were in conflict with each other. Both the French detectives investigating after the crash and later the officers who worked on Operation Pageant rejected his evidence. So according to three witnesses, they each saw a bright flash coming from the tunnel. But one individual specifically named Francois Levy made, made a clear specific claim. But however, later on during questioning, he changed his statements, which conflicted with each other. Man, if you're telling the truth, tell the truth, stick to one, to one, one story or one fact and stick with it. Quit changing your mind over and over and over. You know what I mean? The, the truth shall set you free, my guy. Yeah. But no. He changed his story three times, causing the officers to reject his evidence. Now, did he really change his story by will, by, by his own accord, or was it forced and intimidated? My thought is that here, here's my here's my my theory on this. Again, my unprof, uh, my unprofessional opinion. I 100% believe that he was bullied and threatened and intimidated to change his story on multiple occasions to make his account less not valuable but trustworthy. It, 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 you just can't you can't you can't bank on a liar, especially when when that liar is being intimidated. Again, there's there's just too much. There's too many things in this in in this whole investigation that are way too way too too uh, conspicuous or 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 they're they're questionable. 
to make it seem like it would to, to make it see just to just to flat out wipe you dust your hands car accident I, I don't believe that it was a car accident i 100 believe he was assassinated i'm going to keep repeating that over and over and over let's continue with the Mercedes behind him, he claimed to have seen the flash in his rearview mirror and recounted other elements of what he saw while he was negotiating the difficult bend out of the tunnel. Crucially, however, his testimony was directly contradicted by his then-wife, who was in the passenger seat next to him. However, eyewitnesses Brian Anderson, an American tourist, told detectives that he, too, saw a bright flash. So my only, the only, the only thing that I have to say about the wife contradicting her husband's story about the bright flash is that when things are happening, uh, you hear loud noises, screeches of tire, your memory doesn't always stay intact to where you remember what, what you thought or what was actual, actually seen. Now, the wife could have been 100% correct on her statement, and the husband could have been 100% correct on, the, on his statement. But Grumbler, how can two people be, be 100% correct on, the, on, the, on, on different statements if, if the stories don't match? Easy. Number one, the wife is going to swear she saw it a certain way because at the time that it happened, it, won, it most definitely 100% happened the way that she saw it. Could that, could that, could that view or, or that memory been been affected by the the traumatic incidents that occurred? One hundred percent. Once they realized that after they left the tunnel, the princess, the, the princess of Wales, crashed and died in that tunnel. Then their memory of the of the event of the of a small thing like a like a bright flash of light. It's going to start changing what they believe. Why? Because of the trauma. It's too much stress. It's too much adrenaline to where now your memory of a certain event is is a little obscured. It's a little affected now. That's why I'm saying both can be right or both can be wrong. Let's continue. French police in 1997 were aware of Leverstree's conviction in Rouen during 1989 for dishonesty and his subsequent prison sentence. And he was not thought by them to be a reliable witness. Television documentaries produced by Channel 4 in 2004 and the BBC in 2006 both raised this issue. He appeared as a witness at the British Inquiry via a video link in October 2007. Diana, Secrets Behind the Crash, June 3rd, 1998, an ITV program presented by Nicholas Owen, then ITN's royal correspondent, gave enough weight to the claims of Levistry that 93% of viewers polled by the Mirror newspaper just after the broadcast believed there had been a bright flash of light at the time of the crash. So, I mean, once you, once you start going against the machine, you start again. The, the, one of my favorite bands of all time is Rage Against the Machine. The whole reason why that why that band chose that name is because they are literally raging against the political oppression or the political corruption that is plagued across the entire world. So, with that being said, when you go against a perfect scheme, in this case, we're gonna we're saying that someone assassinated Princess Diana. You start bringing the truth to light 
they're going to start smearing you and making it seem as you are not a credible witness. In this case, they put him on live TV and 100% doubted everything he said, bringing up the time where he was jailed for being dishonest. Now, that is 100% a blow to everyone who believes that this gentleman was telling the truth. When you, when you get arrested for, for lying under oath, I mean, that's a big deal in, in the court of law. However, without knowing the exact circumstances that happened with that, with that conviction, how do we know that he was lying or being dishonest during that time as well? We don't. No one knows. The only people that know if he was being dishonest are the judge, the lawyer, and the individual that they were, or, or, the, or the, uh, the people that were involved in whatever case that they were, they, they were talking about. Let's continue. The detail of eyewitness, eyewitness testimony was thoroughly reviewed, and Operation Paget officers succeeded in uncovering two new witnesses. Other eyewitness testimony made little reference to the appearance of any inexplicable flashes at the crash site. So when you start uncovering more witnesses, to me, what that means is you are looking for people to go with your agenda. That way you can start discrediting the people who actually, who are actually telling the truth. That is the way I see things happening. I just did that, that word, that word alone. It's again, this has raised suspicions to me. He, the, the, the Operation Pageant officers uncovered two new witnesses. See, to me, that's, that means that they just found people who are going to fit the narrative and help, help hide the assassination of Princess Diana. That's just, I mean, that's, that's just too, it's just too suspicious for me. I uncovered two new witnesses. And they agree with everyone else that no one saw a light except for these three individuals. One who is a known liar and was convicted for lying. I just just don't believe it. Several witnesses who would be expected to have seen a blinding flash made no reference to one. In any event, the detailed crash reconstruction revealed that the chain of events that led to the car unavoidably colliding with the pillar started well before it was at the mouth of the tunnel where the flash is alleged to have occurred. So according to reports and according to the investigation, according to the reinvention of or the recreation of of the car accident, the car was already out of control. It was starting to to fishtail and lose its grip on the road well before the alleged blinding light was what was reported. Now, again, the problem that I have with that is that even though you are losing control and you you still have yet to lose complete control if you if you haven't lost control yet if you have not spun out or if you are not crashed into something you still have control of that vehicle so by saying that the the car was was let me see the 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 the, the chain the chain act the chain reaction started well before the the alleged light came into play that's irrelevant for the fact that if you're if you're starting to lose control and then something else blinds you and then you lose complete control of the vehicle crashing into wherever the crash the crash ended up at 
you see, the thing is that you can start losing control two, three blocks down the road, and it takes you quite a while, especially traveling at a high rate of speed to get to gain control of the vehicle. Now, if if you're still on the road, but you're squealing and a swerving, you're yes, you are losing control of the car. You have not lost control completely. You have not lost control completely until you're spun out on your side or you have wrecked. That is the, that is the, 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 the driver definition of I've lost control. So saying that, that the, the, chain, the, the chain of events started way before the, the flashing light, no, that, 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 that doesn't matter. The bright flashing light could have been the icing on the cake, causing the driver to completely lose control or completely losing the control that he was regaining at the at that point in time. You, you know what I mean? Oh, I tell you. Furthermore, a strobe light of that type was alleged to have been used is, is so powerful that a flash emitted from it would have been bright enough to eliminate a very right, wide area. It would have likely blinded not only Paul, but also the driver of the white Fiat Uno and the driver of the white Fiat Uno, the, per, the pursuing paparazzi and witnesses standing at the roadside. The Operation Pageant report concluded that the alleged flash did not happen. Now that is false, 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 false. You do not need a strobe of that caliber to blind that individual. All it literally takes is one bright reflection straight to the eyeballs with someone driving at a high rate of speed to lose control. See, again, there, there's way too many inconsistencies in, these, in this report to show that this was just a common accident escaping from the paparazzi. Now, another alleged, another, another thing that, that's alleged, another conspiracy is that the paparazzi was actually paid government officials posing as paparazzi in order to assassinate Princess Diana without actually assassinating Princess Diana. I mean... There can be, it's so easy for people to fake press passes and pose as paparazzi. Let's continue. Seatbelt. There was some media discussion in April 2006 suggesting that Diana was a faithful seatbelt user and, th- and therefore the fact that both her and Dodie's seatbelts either failed or were not used was sinister and might suggest sabotage. Her sister, Lady Sarah McCordle later said that Diana, quote, was religious in putting on her seatbelt, end quote. Other sources question if she did, in fact, use her seatbelt all the time, as was suggested. So according to, uh, there's some people that say that Princess, there's some people that, that are saying that Princess Diana wore her seatbelt every single time entering the vehicle. Now, back in the 90s, it, it was hit and miss on, on having to use your seatbelt. However, according to several different reports, is that Princess Diana, like I read, was religious about wearing her seatbelt. Now, for those of you who who do not know, Princess Diana was not wearing her seatbelt when she wrecked, causing her to be thrown around in the vehicle. You know, some some experts and some professionals say that if she did wear her seatbelt, she might have been alive. She might not have been very functional but she might have been alive again no one knows the truth other than the people who were in the car and unfortunately they're all dead so we can't ask them let's continue 
What is certain is that she was not wearing a seatbelt and this made things worse. We would like to think that if she had been wearing a seatbelt, we'd been able to save her, said Professor Andre Leinhardt, who reviewed the emergency services response for the French government investigation of the incident. CNN did an analysis of the crash in early September 1997 and concluded that injuries would have been minor and had the occupants been wearing seatbelts. The conclusions were provisional owing owing to limited data about the specific Mercedes model as the limousine was not sold in the U.S. Analysis of the wreckage of the car after its repatriation to England in 2005 by a forensic accident investigator from the Transport Research Laboratory of 35 years' experience on behalf of Operation Pageant found that all the seatbelts were in good working order except for the right rear one, which was attached to the seat Diana occupied. So maybe Diana tried to wear her seatbelt, but the seatbelt was not working for some reason. And so she decided, hey, we're already in the car. Let's just go ahead and roll with it. I'll be okay. So if... If, if the guy that she was with, Dodie Fayette, if he knew that Diana was so anal about wearing her seatbelt, but when she got in the car, the seatbelt wasn't working, wouldn't Fayette want to switch with his boo in order for her to feel comfortable and wear a seatbelt? Boy, I tell you, let me find out that the driver and her boo were involved in the assassination of Princess Diana. Let me find out because that would just blow my mind more than what it just did right now. So I don't, I mean, for, for a lot of you who have significant others, then you know, if, if you know that one of their biggest fears is not wearing a seatbelt in the car or one of their biggest anxieties or trigger towards an anxiety attack, is not wearing a seatbelt, wouldn't you, on good faith, just to keep the individual calm, allow them to sit in the seat that has a functioning, a functional seatbelt? Right? Right. So why wouldn't Fayed move and switch seats with Princess Diana in order for her to have a working seatbelt? Again, there's a lot of suspicions here for me to believe that this wasn't this wasn't an assassination. What, what's even crazier is that all of the seatbelts were in working condition except for the right rear one that was attached to the seat that Princess Diana was sitting in. So everybody's gonna go on just just pretending that this was not a multi-conspiracy, a multi-conspiracy, this wasn't a multi-group effort to assassinate Princess Diana. Don't get me wrong. The, 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 The government, whoever was involved in this, whoever controlled the Diana assassination, yes, they can go as far as getting a specific car for them to use, knowing that they're going to they're going to be using and looking for this type of car. One hundred percent have have the ability to do such a thing. But we're going to pretend like this wasn't an assassination attempt. 
all the seatbelts worked except for one, and it happened to be the right rear one, the one where Princess Diana was sitting in. Come on. If that doesn't explain, if this, if that doesn't show that there's an assassination attempt, what does? What, what's going what's gonna to show that, that this was an assassination attempt, that this was still an accident? Absolutely not. Follow-up inquiries with French investigators found that they had declared all the seatbelts operational at the examination in October 1998, suggesting the damage to the seatbelt took place after the crash. The British inquest verdict explicitly stated the lack of seatbelts had, quote, caused or contributed to, end quote, the death of both Dottie and Diana. So what you're telling me right now is that French investigators French, again, French investigators, again, this happened in France, found that the seatbelt that was damaged and not operational was occurred after the accident. However, British Inquest, when they did it, their verdict explicitly states that the reason Princess Diana and Dodie are dead is because... One, Mr. Dodi Fayed didn't have a seatbelt on. And number two, the seatbelt that Diana was supposed to wear wasn't working. And the seatbelts alone, are the, for them not wearing it, are the reasons why they are not still alive. You see what I mean about why, why would you have a government organization investigate something that the government did? Again, I'm not, I'm not blaming the French government. I'm not blaming the, the British government. But somebody in the government who had those type of ties and that, that kind of reach orchestrated and put all this shit together. There, there's, there, it, that's just the bottom line. Transport to the hospital. Let's continue. The first call to the emergency services switchboard was logged at 1226 a.m. The SMAU ambulance carrying the princess arrived at the... Petit Salpetriere Hospital at 2.06 a.m. This length of time has prompted much conspiracy-related comment. So when the, when the ambulance was called, when, when emergency services was called at 12.26 a.m., the ambulance carrying the Princess of Wales did not arrive at the hospital until 206 a.m. But Grumbler, maybe they were working on her to make sure that she stayed alive in order for her to transport. That is uh, that is 100% a truthful statement. However, I've worked in the medical field for a lot of years, and for those of you who are familiar with the medical field, especially emergency services, know that one of the main things they do are, one, stabilize the patient enough to get them to the gurney. Once the patient is on the gurney and they are in the ambulance, their number one, their their number one, their number one uh, uh, job is to make sure that they do their best to keep the person alive long enough to get more extensive medical help from a hospital. Now you don't try that. You don't sit there and try to save the life like you are in the trauma unit. At, at the crash site. What you try to do is you try to stabilize this patient enough for transport. 
And the, the less, the, the more time you take in getting the individual into the ambulance and to a hospital, the less of a chance you have of saving that individual. And in this case, it was almost two hours at the time that the call was made up to where the princess was taken to the hospital. Now, I mean, let's continue. We're, we're going to read all this and you're going to say, yeah, Grimler, but how far was the hospital? We're going to get into that. The period between the crash and the arrival at the hospital takes into account the following. The time taken for emergency services to arrive, the time taken by the Sapours Pompiers, the, the fire service of Paris to remove Diana from the damaged car, and the actual journey time from the crash site to the hospital. For those of you who still haven't done it, Google, Google the Princess Diana car, uh, the, the, the car that, that wrecked. And you're going to see that it was a crumbled piece of tin can. So, yes, it did take time for them to, to rescue and take Diana out of the car. That did. That was true. However, that's still way too much time when you have someone hanging on by a thread to get them to emergency services. Police officers Sebastian Dorsey and Lino Gal. Gagliadorn were the first emergency officials to arrive at the scene at around 12.30 a.m., six minutes after, sorry, four minutes after the phone call was put. The call was at 12.26 a.m., and these two officers arrived at 12.30 a.m. Sergeants Xavier Gormelon and Philippi Boyer of the Sap, Sapours Pompiers arrived at around 12.32 a.m. Dr. Jean-Marc Martino, a specialist in anesthetics and intensive care treatment, and the doctor in charge of the SMAU ambulance arrived at 12.40 a.m. Diana was removed from the car at 1 a.m. She then went into cardiac arrest. Following external cardiopulmonary resuscitation, her heart started beating again. She was moved to the SMAU ambulance at 1.18 a.m. 1.18 a.m. And she didn't arrive at the hospital until 2.06 a.m. Come on now, you guys. The ambulance departed the crash scene at 1.41 a.m. and arrived at the hospital at 2.06 a.m. A journey time of approximately 26 minutes. This included a stop at the Gardie Austria. Austerlitz ordered by Dr. Martino because of the drop in blood pressure of the Princess of Wales and the necessity to deal with it. The ambulance was traveling slowly on his express instructions. The doctor was concerned about Diana's blood pressure and the effects on her medical condition of declaration and acceleration. The doctor was concerned of Diana's blood pressure and the effects on her medical condition of deceleration and acceleration. This is absolute bullshit. You should not worry about the acceleration. And the faster you go to, to, to get someone treated is the quicker you can save them. So now you're having them drive exceptionally slow. This is per a doctor's instructions. Why, oh, why would you have the ambulance drive slowly to the hospital? And when you stop that one hospital, why didn't you just stop there and get, the, and get Princess Diana treated? Why did you have to leave that hospital? To go to a different hospital. It doesn't matter about, you know, contracts or whatever the case may be. The bullshit. What matters is the life of the Princess of Wales. Again, I'm going to say it again. I sound like a broken record today. 
there's too many suspicious activities that occurred that makes me think that this was all a setup. It just doesn't make sense to me why any of this is going to happen. Let's continue. The SMAU ambulance carrying Diana passed the Hotel du Hospital on the Ile de la Cite en route on the Petit Salpetrier Hospital. The decision to transfer her to the, to the Petit Salpetrier Hospital was taken by Dr. Mac Leger, who was on dispatch duty in SMAU hospital or SMAU control on that night. In consultation with Dr. DeRosi, who was at the scene. So we're gonna we're we're gonna pass one hospital, which we could have stopped there, which probably was only a few minutes from the crash site. And then we're gonna pass, we're gonna go to another hospital, the Petit Salpetrier Hospital. And the decision to transfer her there was taken what was taken by Dr. Mark Lejay, who was on dispatch duty in SMAU control that night, who was in consultation with Dr. DeRosi, who was on the scene. So we passed by one hospital that could perf- that, that could more than likely have been able to house and control and save Princess Diana's life. But instead is going to be sent to a different hospital costing more valuable time in the lack of life-saving equipment and supplies that can be in a hospital for another hospital. Hmm. The Petit Salpetrier Hospital was the main reception center for multiple trauma patients in Paris. The Hotel du was, Deu was not equipped to deal with the injuries Diana has sustained. Lee J stated, the Hotel du Deu Hospital on the Ile de la Cite is closer but not equipped with heart surgery teams or neurosurgical teams or teams trained to take patients with multiple injuries. Lee J was also aware that Professor Bruno Rio was on duty at the Petit Petit Salpetrier that night and was particularly skilled to treat her injuries. Dr. Jean-Marc Martino supported this view. I just, I just, I just don't agree with it. I just, I don't know. I mean, if you have one doctor who knows what the hell he's doing and talking about, wouldn't they be able to stabilize her long enough to airlift her or to get her stable to there? I mean, I, again, I don't know. I, I'm not, I'm not a doctor. This is all my unprofessional opinion. It just, it just seems suspicious to me. Embalming the body. Let's keep, let's continue. Okay. Embalming the body. Mohammed Al-Fayed alleged that Diana's body was deliberately embalmed shortly after her death to ensure that any pregnancy test at the post-mortem would produce a false result. Yeah, her body, I bet you didn't know that either because I didn't know that. Her body was embalmed unusually fast and unusually quick. But nobody knows the reason why. You know, after they pronounced her dead and everyone made sure that she was dead, she was embalmed almost immediately, but there was no explanation. Let me, let me, let me backtrack for one little second. Let's go back to, to, to the whole debacle. Allegedly, from other reports, conspiracy theories have stated that the officers and fire department wasted time in, in trying to save 
Princess Diana, pretty much they took their sweet time. It is also alleged that Diana, who was dying, was begging for help, but nobody was reaching out to help her. This is all, again, this is all conspiracy and alleged that that might have happened. The fire department apparently was taking their sweet time. The police officer who first made contact made no attempts uh, to console Princess Diana. Again, this is all alleged. I don't know the truth. Princess Diana was bloody, battered, and dying and was calling for help. And according to reports, she was ignored. Let's continue. Operation found that on August 31st, 1997, was a very hot day in Paris. Diana's body has been stored. Diana's body had been stored in an empty room adjacent to the emergency room where she had been treated at the, at the Petit Salpatrier Hospital as the mortuary was on the other side of the hospital grounds and some distance away. Dry ice and air conditioning units were placed in the room to keep it cool, but appeared to have little to have had little success. So the day that she died, they're going to leave her in a room with dry ice and air conditioning instead of getting her over to the morgue where they were better equipped to handle, I don't know, dead bodies. Why would you just leave a random man's dead body? In, I mean, especially the, prince of, the princess of Wales. I mean, you shouldn't do it with anybody, honesty, honestly. Let alone with the Princess of Wales, knowing that you have such an important person in your hospital who is dead, why would you just stick her into the room? Again, this is these, these are all things that that are just weird. I have a fun, I have a funny story now that that I mentioned about uh, Princess Diana being stuck in a room with dry ice and, and air conditioning. I first I I I, I, did, I had a job working as a housekeeper at Kern Medical Center back in the good old days. I mean, this was back in 2000, 2001 when I was, I was a wee little grumbler. Well, one of my jobs were, well, one of my areas that I was assigned to was the KMC ER room. And for those of you who aren't familiar with KMC, KMC is a level two trauma center. This is Kern Medical Center in Bakersfield, California. By far, one of the greatest trauma units in Kern County and surrounding counties. I have seen some crazy stuff there where these amazing doctors and nurses at the time, I don't know how it is now. This is back when I was back in 2001, 2000, where where I witnessed all this. These amazing trauma doctors and trauma nurses saved a lot of people. I'm talking about multiple stab wounds, gunshot victims, suicide attempts, murder attempts. These people were were dead. And I know they were dead because I've heard them flatline as the, as the doctors were saving their lives. Now, one, one time when I was cleaning up the room, there, there's a little room called the cast room that's no longer used to make casts. Back in the old days, the, the down in the ER department, right next to the mental health room, right next to the to the fifty one fifty room, the padded room. There was this little room called the cast room. Well, I was making my rounds, and I was it was well, it was towards the end of my shift, so I was I was mopping up the the that side of the hospital or that side of the ER, and I was making I was going to go in there to each room to mop it down, wipe it down, take out the trash, and you know and get going. Well, I went to the cast room badged myself in, opened the door, and I saw someone on the gurney, and I apologized. 
And I said, oh, I am so sorry to disturb you, but I will just be a second. Is that okay? I didn't hear any answers, so I assumed, okay, the, the patient doesn't, doesn't mind. Now, the light was on when I opened the door, okay? So, yeah, I know you're laughing at me right now. So I walked into the room. And here's the crazy thing. Here, here's here's what even here here's what makes it even even funnier. I walked in and the patient's face was uncovered. The, the the patient was covered up to the neck only. So I walk in and I start grabbing everything and I start and I start uh, taking out the trash. I start mopping and wiping down, and I just got this weird eerie feeling. So I stop and I turn to the patient to apologize for being rude and barging into this patient's room. As I turn around and I look at this patient to apologize, I realize the goddamn patient is dead. Apparently, someone didn't tell me when I worked there. Thanks, George, my compadre. George, you know what George I'm talking about. No one told me that they put dead bodies in the x-ray, in the, in the cast room, in order for them to be transported down to the morgue to be taken care of. No one told me this, so I'm over here cleaning around this dead body, apologizing to this poor, this poor dead body. Several times saying, you know, I, I, you know I'm excusing myself for being in there as, trying to get some sleep. You know, I, I, was, I was trying to be the best employee I could, so it didn't dawn on me that, yo, why is he in this room by himself where there's no medical staff, there's no family? There's just this lone-ass body in this room. Yeah, the body, was, of course, the, the dude was dead. D-E-D, dead. And everybody, once everybody found out that I went in to go clean and I apologized to a dead body, oh, yeah, everyone's laughing at me. Oh, I can't believe you didn't know. You know, you didn't know that this was a dead body. No, I didn't know that's where they stored that they stored the dead bodies, man. Somebody could have given me a heads up, like a little boo-hoo. Don't go in there. Something. But no, no. Everybody let me just go on about my business. No one told me anything. Thanks, George. I appreciate it, man. You were down in the ER too. Although I don't think we were friends at that point yet. But still, you could have told me something. I'm over here apologizing to a dead body. Yeah. Thanks, man. <laughs> Let's continue with the episode. I just had to get that out. It just reminded me when it said Diana was in that room with the with the block of ice. Diana's two sister uh, sisters and Prince Charles were scheduled to view the body later that afternoon before bringing it back to the United Kingdom. President Jacques Chirac and his wife also wished to pay their respect. This meant there was very little time to prepare the body for viewing, and it was deemed unacceptable to present Diana's body to her family and the president of France in the state it was in. So I understand that you want to see the dead body, but why? I I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't have a comment on that one. Let's just continue. Faced with the situation, the hospital staff decided to press ahead with embalming with only verbal authority from Madame Martine Montel, the local superintendent of police who assured Jean Moncou, quote, that everything would be in order, end quote. Under French law, paperwork must be completed before undertaking the embalming of any corpse likely to be subject to a post-mortem autopsy. So even by French law, 
Princess Diana's body should not have been embalmed pending because her body was up for a post-mortem evaluation. But yet, this, this individual, Madame Martine Montel, said it was perfectly okay to embalm the body. Huh. Even though it, there was no autopsy done beforehand. I mean, you, do you understand how, how crazy all this sounds? It just sounds re-fucking-diculous. So the cops, under French law, and this is this is the French law. Paperwork must be completed completed before the embalming of any corpse. But yet, Princess Diana's body was embalmed before an autopsy was taken was 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 completed. Oh, I tell you. This paperwork was completed, but only after the embalming had been carried out, giving rise to allegations of suspicious circumstances. The allegations were made despite there being no way the hospital staff could have known whether or not Diana was pregnant, as a pregnancy test would have been irrelevant to her post-crash treatment and accordingly was not carried out. So they just completely disregarded. They just completely disregarded everything about about the pregnancy. What, what I mean... It, what what not 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 disregard everything about the pregnancy, but usually when okay, so usually when there's life saving things going on, if there's not a visible, if it's not visibly recognized that the patient is pregnant, the chances of them doing a pregnancy test to avoid damage to the fetus are very slim to none. That is true, one hundred percent. So I, I can understand that. However. The embalming should never have taken place prior to the autopsy being carried out. That, that's bottom line. Let's continue. SAS, Conspiracy of the SAS, Special Air Service. The SAS is a special service, it's a special forces unit of the British Army. The SAS was founded in 1941 as a regiment and later reconstructed as a corps in England. I just wanted to tell, you know, let you know what that was about. A little information. The court-martial of SAS sniper Danny Nightingale led to a letter, a letter written by witness, Soldier In, and sent to his in-laws coming to wider attention. Soldier In, Nightingale's former roommate, was in prison for illegally hiding firearms and ammunition. On August 17th, 2013, the Metropolitan Police announced they were reviewing evidence that Soldier Inn had boasted that the SAS were behind the death of Princess Diana. The parents of Soldier Inn's estranged wife reportedly wrote to the SAS commanding officer claiming Soldier Inn had told his wife the unit, quote, arranged, end quote, Diana's death, and it was, quote, covered up, end quote. He's not wrong. I don't know if the SAS had anything to do with it, but I know that somebody, some government had, had anything to do with it, and it was 100% covered up. The information was reportedly passed on to Scotland Yard by the Royal Military Police. However, Scotland Yard stressed that this was this information would not lead to a reinvestigation and that they were examining its quote relevant relevance and credibility end quote. It stressed that it would not lead to an examine a reinvestigation of of the Princess Anne's death or 
the information that that SAS was behind the assassination of Princess Diana. Huh. They also confirmed that Prince Charles and Mohammed Al-Fayed were kept were being kept informed as preliminary examination progressed. At the end of November 2013, Scotland Yard ended its study of the SAS allegations and released a statement saying, quote, the, Metropol- the Metropolitan Police Service has scoped the information and is in the process of drawing up conclusions, which will be communicated to the families and interested parties first, before any further comment can be made, end quote. On December 16, it emerged from Sky News report that there was, quote, no credible evidence, end quote, that the SAS was involved in the death of the, of the princess and the others, and thus no reason to reopen the investigation. I call bullshit. I, again, you can't have government. You, you, you can't have government organizations investigating government cover-ups and assassinations. There's always going to be no guilty, non-guilty, and shit like that that's going to follow to where it's just it's just not gonna it's it's just not gonna happen. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Graveyard Grumbler's final wrap. Let's 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 wrap this episode up. New stories continue to em- to emerge years later about Princess Diana's last words on the 20th anniversary of Princess Diana's death in 2017. French fighter. French firefighter Xavier Gourmelon told the son that his team was the first to arrive at the site of the crash. He stayed by her while while she was taking out the Mercedes, not recognizing the princess either. So allegedly this guy didn't know who Princess Diana was, but he was he was with her while she was being removed from the Mercedes bullshit. Before rescuers helped her out of the car, Gormelon claimed he heard Diana say, quote, my God, what's happened, end quote, before going into cardiac arrest. Now, other alleged uh, reports stating to the same individual were were reported saying that Princess Diana also begged for help and asked, why aren't you helping me? Why are you just standing there? Please help me. Please let me out of here. Please. I need your help. Why are you just standing there? There's a conspiracy saying that the firefighters that arrived on the scene were hesitant and taking their time in removing Princess Diana from the wreckage. I don't know how accurate that is. Again, that's that's just that's just were some reports of the conspiracy. Again, as as somebody as as a as a first responder, how could you just stand there and watch somebody die? And not and not make any value, you know, valiant attempt in rescuing this individual, princess or not. Your 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 obligation as a first responder is to help anyone and everyone without prejudice, without prejudice or judgment, right? Right. Unless the government is involved, so therefore you're going to slow play it, or else you're going to lose your career, your life, and your family. Right. Right. Gurmalan said he gave her CPR and that she seemed stable when she left in the ambulance, but he kept his experience a secret except when giving evidence in Diana's inquest in 2007 until leaving the fire department because French firefighters aren't allowed to talk to the media. It is alleged that the security services of of the United Kingdom covertly obtained the information concerning pregnancy and engagement with or without the cooperation of overseas agencies precipitating the need to put into operation a plan to murder them. 
Mohammed Al-Fayed further alleges there was a cover-up by the establishment to prevent the conspiracy and murders from coming to light. I 100% believe that. Now, one of the biggest conspiracy that still stays true even here in 2021 is that Princess Diana was murdered for the fact that she could possibly have been pregnant by an Egyptian Muslim. Again, this has to do racial and prejudice, and it's fucking stupid. Being racist is one of the stupidest things you can ever be. However, if you look at the history of the royals, they all have a very deep, dark history of being, of being racist, unfortunately. It's a sad thing to, to admit, and it's a sad thing that, that is, 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 is a real thing. Diana was under close surveillance by M16, CIA, and NSA in the United States, closely and the United States closely intercepted and monitored her telephone, her, tele, her telephone calls. The CIA and NSA possesses 39 documents consisting of 1,054 pages, which relate in part to transcripts of telephone calls made by Princess Diana whilst, whilst, she, has, whilst she was with my son. They would have been aware that she intended to publicly announce her engagement to Doty on Monday, September 1st, 1997. So that was allegedly stated by Mohammed Al-Fayed that this M16 CIA and NSA allegedly possess 1,054 pages of phone calls that were directly involved to Doty Fayed. And also in those transcripts, it is alleged that they would have made their engagement public on December 1st, 1997. And to and along with that was the alleged pregnancy with Fayed, which no one no one knows 100 percent for sure if, if if she was even pregnant. Let's continue. To embalm Princess Diana in, Fr- in France was an illegal act, more, more especially because a postmortem had not been, a postmortem autopsy had uh, not, excuse me, god damn it. A postmortem evaluation had not had to be conducted in London. Yes, you heard that. To embalm Princess Diana in France was illegal. Illegal. Now, if that doesn't show that this shit was covered up, then I don't know what's going to show that, that it was covered up. Mohammed Afayed suspects the reason the embalming was done was to conceal the fact that princess was the princess was pregnant with Dodi's child. That is a huge conspiracy that might be true. It has not been explained why Diana's body was embalmed within an hour of her death and on whose authority. It was her embalming was done within an hour. Of her death. Sometimes people don't get involved for a day. But all of a sudden she was involved. In, after, up to an hour later. The fuck out of here. This can only have been done to corrupt body samples. That would have shown she was pregnant with Dodie's child. Now one, one of the conspiracies. One of the, uh, being alleged is that. The reason why she was involved, embalmed so fast. So quickly. Was that she was pregnant. Number one. I'm not saying that she was. I, 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 I do not know if she was pregnant. I am not saying she was pregnant. But what I am. I'm giving my unprofessional opinion. The reason why she was involved is because. Involved. Because if you don't have any blood or anything else. To, to, to give pregnancy samples. No fluids to give pregnancy samples. 
you're not going to know you're pregnant. And number two, any discard of any sort of fetus or whatever might have been growing inside of Princess Diana, I don't know the stages of, of, uh, of uh, evolution or the stage of growth inside of a woman's body because I'm not a woman, nor am I a, a, a pediatric doctor or an OBGYN. However, when you when you do something at such a quick, I mean, an hour after she died, it just, it just grows. It just makes me get more and more and more suspicious. It just it's just one of those bizarre things. On why, why would it have been done? So let, let me give you my final thoughts again. I, I I I did the final wrap that way to throw a little bit more information your way. But let me give you my final thoughts. So I one hundred percent believe Princess Diana was was assassinated. Number two, I 100% believe that multiple government governing agencies had a hand in, in the assassination of Princess Diana. Was Princess Diana murdered because she was married Mohammed Al- I mean, not Mohammed, but Dodi Al-Fayed? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But one thing is for sure that the British royals did not like Princess Diana for some reason. That was evident. There's, there's several... Reports stating how they didn't like her. Princess Diana herself has mentioned multiple times that she's not a liked individual. Unfortunately, instead of just letting her be gone and be, you know, go on her own and just fall into the wayside, they decided that it was important for them to take her out. It's, it's fucking ridiculous. I do believe that she was murdered. I mean, I do believe she's assassinated. I believe that, that this was a senseless murder. And I, again, I don't know exactly who's covering up, but my number one guess would be people in her own country. So my CIA agent and FBI agent and NSA agent who are listening into my podcast right now, you're off the hook. I'm not blaming you. I'm not blaming America. I just believe that some foreign entity did have something to do with the death of Princess Diana. Wow. That's crazy. When you, when you don't want to do more... Or when you don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but then you start reading a bunch of evidence showing that people are lying and they're covering shit. The biggest, the biggest thing that, 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 that messed me up was that she was embalmed an hour after she had died. They do autopsy and, and post-mortem evaluations or physical, uh, in, not inspections, but uh, yeah, post-mortem physicals pretty much on the average Joe. Someone who isn't even important. I mean, a homeless man who over who overdosed. They're going to do a postmortem physical to see exactly what had happened and what caused the, the death of this individual. But you're telling me that one of the most important figures in the entire world, not not even the UK, not even Europe, the entire world, no postmortem physical was conducted, and she was embalmed. An hour after she would, after she was pronounced dead, that right there is one of the biggest head scratchers for me in the entire fucking world. Is that this this was this was definitely assassination attempt with multiple with multiple parties involved, and it, it, it's such a shitty deal. All right, everybody. Well, that we're gonna wrap up that episode. I mean, that that was that was a pretty good. I, I like that one. Thank you, Chewbox, for uh, for letting me for suggesting the Princess Diana conspiracy. You know. Maybe I got off of course a little bit. My apologies. If it was done well, you guys are welcome. Let me know if, uh, if, if it was a good episode. Graveyardgrumbler at mail.com. 
Graveyard Grumbler podcast on Instagram and Podbean. Hit me up and, and drop a message or two. What do I have for announcements? Oh, announcements. Uh, my Patreon is still going. You get two stories, not two stories, but I release multiple spooky stories twice a month. I'm also adding more. I'm, I'm adding episodes. I, I know that I said that I wasn't going to. I was going to release some of my episodes on my regular pod. But when I, when I recorded those episodes, I'm like, damn, I can't release these on the regular pod. They're, they're just a little too graphic, and I don't know my demographics. I don't know what, what age range I have listening to my pod. I mean, I already, I already drop F-bombs and, and cuss here and there on my pod. I, I didn't want to add more graphic content to the pod and then get a lot of people angry. And then, you know, I, 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 I want everybody to enjoy the pod. So I try to keep it somewhat family friendly, but I still, you know, I still keep the uh, the authentic me and and you know give the pod the way that I give the pod. So I decided that I'm going to start releasing episodes on on the Patreon. And if you want to get into the, if you want to get on on the Patreon, I only have one tier. It's five dollars a month. You get again, you get multiple spooky stories twice a month. And now I'm going to be releasing episodes, more graphic episodes that are again that that I feel are just. Too, too graphic and too intense for my regular podcast. Other than that, I am thankful for everybody who listens to the show. I appreciate everyone's support. Please share my podcast with everybody and anybody you know. The more people you share this, the bigger that the podcast gets and the happier a lot of people are that they actually hear my voice. <laughs> Why lie, right? Why lie? So thank you everyone from all around the world who listen to the podcast. I, I truly, truly appreciate each and every one of you who, who tune into the podcast every week. Thank you very much. Next week's episode, I'm undecided what I'm going to do. I mean, I have so many things in the works, but we'll see. Again, I appreciate everyone. And as always, oh, by the way, I'm going to give my sign off, but don't cut off the episode. I have a special treat for everybody at the end of this episode. So don't, don't cut off the episode. Okay? Okay. And as always, good morning, good day, good night, goodbye. BBC employees lied and used fake documents to obtain the interview with my mother, made lurid and false claims about the royal family, which played on her fears and fueled paranoia, displayed woeful incompetence when investigating complaints and concerns about the programme. How did the rest of the royal family react when they learnt that the child that you were to have was going to be a boy. Mm. Well, everybody was thrilled to bits. It was been a, quite a difficult pregnancy. I hadn't been very well throughout it. So by the time William arrived, it was great relief because it was all peaceful again, and I was well for a time. Then I was unwell with postnatal depression, which no one ever discusses postnatal depression. You have to read about it afterwards. And that in itself was a bit of a difficult time wake up in the morning feeling you didn't want to get out of bed uh, you felt misunderstood and um, just very very low in yourself was this completely out of character for you yes very much so I've never had a, never had had a depression in my life but then when I analyzed it I could see that the changes I'd made in the last year had all caught up with me and my body had said we want a rest what was the the family's reaction to your postnatal depression? Well, maybe I was the first person ever to be in this family who ever had a depression or was ever openly tearful. And obviously that was daunting because if you've never seen it before, how do you support it? 
What effect did the depression have on your marriage? Well, it gave everybody a wonderful new label. It's Diana's unstable. Diana's um, mentally imbalanced. And unfortunately, that seems to have stuck on and off over the years. According to press reports, it was suggested that it was around this time things became so difficult that you actually tried to injure yourself. Mm. Is that true? Mm. When no one listens to you or you feel no one's listening to you, all sorts of things start to happen. For instance, you have so much pain inside yourself that you try and hurt yourself on the outside because you want help, but it's the wrong help you're asking for. People see it as crying wolf or attention-seeking, and they think because you're in the media all the time, you've got enough attention, inverted commas. But I was actually crying out because I wanted to get better in order to go forward and continue my duty and my role as wife, mother, Princess of Wales. So, I, uh, yes, I did inflict upon myself. I didn't like myself. I was ashamed because I couldn't cope with the pressures. What did you actually do? Well, I just hurt my arms and my legs. And I work in environments now where I see women doing similar things. And I'm able to understand completely where they're coming from. The depression was resolved, as you say. But it was subsequently reported that you suffered bulimia. Mm. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Yes, I did. I had bulimia for a number of years. And that's like a secret disease you inflicted upon yourself because your self-esteem is to low ebb and you don't think you're worthy or valuable. You fill your stomach up four or five times a day, some, some do it more, and it gives you a feeling of comfort. It's like having a pair of arms around you, but it's temporarily temporary then you you're disgusted at the bloatedness of your stomach and then you bring it all up again and it's a it's a repetitive pattern which is very destructive to yourself how often would you do that on a daily basis depends on the pressures going on if i'd been on an, what i call an away day where i'd been up part of the country all day i'd come home feeling pretty empty because my engagements at that time would be to do with people dying people very sick people marriage is the problem and all that and I come home and it would be very difficult to know how to comfort myself having been comforted lots of other people so regular pattern to jump into the fridge it was a symptom of what was going on in my marriage I was crying out for help giving the wrong signals and people were using my bulimia as a coat on a hanger they decided that was the problem Diana was unstable and so you subjected yourself to this phase of binging and, and vomiting? You could say the word subjected, but it was my escape mechanism, and it worked for me at that time. Did you seek help from any other members of the royal family? No. You, you have to know that when you have bulimia, you're very ashamed of yourself, and you hate yourself, so, um, and people think you're wasting food. So it doesn't, you don't discuss it with people. And the thing about bulimia is your weight always stays the same, whereas with anorexia you visibly shrink. So you can pretend the whole way through. No proof. The biography of the Prince of Wales, written by Jonathan Dimbleby, which, as you know, was published last year, suggested that you and your husband had very different outlooks, very different interests. Do you agree with that? No. I think we had... A great deal of interest. We were both we both liked people, both liked country life, both loved children. Um, 
work in the cancer field, work in hospices. I was portrayed in the media at that time, if I remember rightly, as someone, because I hadn't passed any O-levels and taken any A-levels, I was stupid. And I made the grave mistake once of saying to a child I was thick as a plank in order to ease the child's nervousness, which it did. But it, that headline went all around the world. And I rather regret saying it. The Prince of Wales, in, in the biography, is described as a great thinker, a man with a tremendous range of interests. What did he think of your interests? Well, I didn't think I was allowed to have any. I think that I've always been the 18-year-old girl he got engaged to, so uh, I don't think I've been given any credit for growth. And my goodness, I've had to grow. <laughs> Around 1986, again according to the biography written by Jonathan Dimbleby about your husband, he says that your husband renewed his relationship with Mrs. Camilla Parker Bowles. Aware of that? Yes, I was. But I wasn't in a position to do anything about it. Did you have that their relationship was continuing even though you were married? A, a woman's instinct is a very good one. <laughs> so you were isolated? Mm-hmm. Very much so. Do you think Mrs. Parker Bowles was a factor? in the breakdown of your marriage? Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. In December of that year, as you say, you'd agreed to a legal separation. Mm -hmm. What were your feelings at the time? Deep, deep, profound sadness. We had struggled to keep it going, but obviously we'd, all, we'd both run out of steam. And in a way, I suppose it could have been a relief for us both that we'd finally made our minds up. But my husband asked for separation and I supported it. It was not your idea? No, not at all. I come from a divorce backup background. I didn't want to go into that one again. What happened next? We, uh, I asked my husband if we could put the announcement out before the children came back for school for Christmas holidays because they were protected in the school they were at. We did that and it came out on December the 9th. I was on an engagement up north. I heard it on the radio. It was just very, very sad, really sad. A fairy tale had come to an end. And most importantly, our marriage taken a turn, different turn. Do you think the Prince of Wales will ever be king? I don't think any of us know the answer to that. And obviously it's a question that's in everybody's head. But who knows? Who knows what fate will produce? Who knows what circumstances will provoke? You would know him better than most people. Do you think he would wish to be king? There's always conflict on that subject with him when we discussed it. And I understood that conflict because it's a very demanding role, being Prince of Wales, but it's equally a more demanding role, being king. And being Prince of Wales produces more freedom now, and being king would be a little bit more suffocating. And because I know the character, I would think that the top job, as I call it, would bring enormous limitations to him. And I don't know whether he could adapt to that. Would it be your wish that when Prince William comes of age, that he 
were to succeed the Queen rather than the, prin the current Prince of Wales? My wish is that my husband finds peace of mind. And from that follows other things, yes. This is the end, this is the end, this is the end. Beautiful friend, 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 friend. Graveyard Grumbler Graveyard Podcast. Grumbler.